stand together. Remember that movie? It was called It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Remember that movie? Am I dating myself by even referring to the movie? But, you know, the thing was prophetic. At least the title. We're there. It's a mad, 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 mad world. If ever there was a time America needed the word of God, it is now. I mean, and not a diluted, polluted, watered down word, but the straight up gospel. It's like I was sharing Sunday. The only solution for America that remains, only one. It's not going to be a Democrat, not going to be a Republican. It's not going to be Washington. They're the ones, all of them, that got us into this mess, at least a lot of it. Um, but it's going to be the gospel, the gospel of Christ. That's it, right? That's it. And so I think putting out the word like we are, and we're everywhere. We're on about 450 radio stations now. Um, we've just gone on um, Pray.com, which is the hottest Christian blog app in the world. And so we're going into countries all over the world. And so I'm expecting feedback soon from, hey, Saudi Arabia, can I believe God? I mean, you know, everywhere. So that's what we're all about. And if that's what you're about, you're in the right church. All right. So let's pray. And we're going to see what John saw when he went to heaven. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you today for the word of God. This is not a man's word, Lord. But no, this is inspired by God. Holy men of old, moved on by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote what the Spirit of God moved on them to write. Lord, this is a supernatural word. And we pray that as we get into it tonight, it'll change us, rearrange us, renew our minds. That, Lord, we will understand what you gave us this book to grasp. It's not to be a confusing book, but it's to be understood. So, Lord, we just thank you for it. And can we just pray together and say, Lord, tonight, speak to my heart. I receive the word and graft it into my soul in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him Jesus is coming soon. And you can be seated. Glory to God. Good to see all of you here. And it's supposed to be a thunderstorm around 10 o'clock, so we barely made it. But we're, we're good. You're good. So don't leave just because I said that. It's not coming. All right? I just saw that it was in the forecast. But um, anyway, we're going to look tonight at chapters 4 and 5. And there it goes again. Are we okay? We're, we've been having mic trouble here. See, how, see if it works, AJ. All right, we're good. We're good. <laughs> Our brother there, it was something Sunday. I, you know, I was at the pulpit, not down here, and it started doing that. And he literally, from up there, he bounded down the aisle. He almost, he almost leaped all four stairs 
and grabbed that mic and everybody was, was good with it. And we got it fixed. You know, Hey, these things happen. The devil doesn't want me teaching the word of God, right? So he'll mess with these things. Now, Let's recap a little bit. Last time we looked at the seven churches, right? To which John initially addresses his revelation, but it really wasn't John at all. It was Jesus. Jesus, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not John. And here's the churches, Ephesus. And we we gave one little adjective uh, next to every church name to tell you what sort of uh, typified or characterized this particular church. So Ephesus was the lacking church. They'd lost their first love. Smyrna was the loyal church. Jesus had not one word of criticism for them. And there was only two of them. He, didn't, he did not correct. Pergamus was the lax church. Thyatira was the loose church. Sardis, the lifeless church. Philadelphia, the loving church. No correction for Philadelphia either. And Laodicea was the lukewarm church, and I share with you that I really believe if we're we're in a church age and these represent church ages, we're in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the the time of apostasy and uh, materialism dominating the church instead of spiritual riches, The, the emphasis on money and not on spiritual wealth, and that's Laodicea, and how many of you know we're there? Now, not us here, but by and large... That's what you see with the Western church. Now, we come to chapter four, where John is caught up into the throne room of God. Now, just so that we don't kind of read this and we go, wow, that's kind of cool and that's neat. And it goes in one ear and out the other. I want to just cause us to, to stop a minute and just think. John is being taken to heaven, the real heaven. And what he sees and what he writes down, you and I would never know if he had not been shown this. This is pure revelation, all right? So how many of you believe one day you're going to be in heaven? How many of you have wondered what it looks like? What's up there? What are they doing up there right now, okay? John is going to give us an idea of what's going on in heaven. He is about to be taken up into heaven. He is literally going to be there looking around, seeing the sights of heaven, and then he's going to write what he saw and what he heard. So we're getting a um, sort of a dress rehearsal. We're getting an idea of what heaven is really actually going to be like, not what you imagine it to be. But what it's really going to be like. So now it should be noted when we get to verse one of chapter four, and I'm going to read it as soon as I make this comment. uh, Many Bible teachers hold to the belief that verse one and verse two, which records John being commanded to come up here, represents the rapture of the church. They, They will literally teach, and that's okay. If that's what you believe, that's not heresy by any stretch. But many believe that when John is commanded, come up here, that that is the rapture of the church. It's, it's symbolizing the rapture of the church. Now, I'm teaching this series so I can tell you what I think. The text doesn't say that. So I don't want to read something into it that isn't there. 
Now, now listen very carefully to me. There's two things you can do with reading the Bible and the way you interpret it. Exegesis or eisegesis, all right? ex Jesus or eis Jesus. all right? Exegesis is when you pull out of the text what God intended you to get from it, what God intended to say. Your job as a Bible teacher is to interpret what God intended you to get from it. And it's a skill. You, you don't, you know, there's examples I could use, but we don't have time. You just have to, you have to know that interpreting the Bible is a learned skill. Now, not with everything. Everybody understands John three sixteen. We get it. But when you go into something like the book of Revelation, you need to be sure that you're exegeting and not eisegeting. Now, what is eisegesis? E-I-S is a Greek word that means into. And what you're doing is you're reading into it what you want it to say, what you wish it said, other than what it directly says, what God meant to say. Now, for whatever reason, our country is filled with eisegetes. They're all over social media. I hear people teaching things like, oh, what did you eat this morning or what have you been smoking? That that's what you get out of this text. Because that's not what it says, all right? See, I'm very careful because God's word says in Revelation 22, if you take from it or you add to it, you're gonna get the curses that are in that book. So I have a real fear of the Lord with teaching the Bible because the teacher is going to receive many stripes. And I'm going to answer to God. I'm going to give an account for how I taught you. That's what it says. Now that alone scares me in a good way. All right? So I want to be real careful. I'm telling you what it says, not what I want it to say. When you hear a teacher, you ought to get good enough with the word that you are saying, wait a minute, now is that in the Bible? Is he eisegeting or is he exegeting? Is this an eisegete I'm listening to? Because there's some good eisegetes out there. It'll make you think that it says something it never said. And, and there's not as many good exegetes. But you need to ask yourself, is he or she, are they exegeting or are they eisegeting? Now that's free, that's not in my notes. But I want you to know that. So I don't see, here's the verse, verse one, uh, chapter four, verse one. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, read it, everybody, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. Well, when I read this, I can't make that say it's the rapture of the church because he uses the personal pronoun, you, singular, John, come up here. It's not a plural, it's a singular. Now, having said that, what we do note is that after chapter three, the church is never again shown on the earth in the book of Revelation. It's never again on earth. After chapter three, the, earth, the, the church is always found in heaven worshiping God. So, is it possible that the rapture happens before this terrible time period called the Great Tribulation? Yes. I believe that at any moment we could be raptured. One of my dreams is that I'm preaching 
hard and hot and heavy and come up here. We really do go up and that's the way I meet Jesus. Jesus said, and boom, I'm there. All right. That's, that's a great dream of mine. Now, if you disappear and I'm still here, I'm repenting. All right. Now, so it is worth noting that after chapter three, there, there's no sight of the, the church on earth. It, it, the redeemed are always in heaven. And we're going to see some of that tonight. Now, verse one also tells us that what John is about to see and hear is prophetic in nature because look what Jesus says to him. I will show you what must happen after this. So now we're slipping into the prophetic. He's no longer addressing churches in the present tense, but he's talking now the future. So we're going now into prophecy and it's prophecy for the rest of the book, chapter four through 22. It's all prophecy. Chapter four, we're going to see is all about showing God in complete control of all things. He's ruling the universe from his throne and fully knowledgeable of what the future holds. That's what we're going to see in chapter four, a magnificent sovereign in charge of everything, God. Look at verse two. Instantly I was in the spirit and behold, a throne sitting in heaven. And one, capital O, sat on the throne. Wow. In chapters four and five, an incredible drama is about to unfold before John's eyes. Here's what he's going to see. He's going to see the absolute sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. God is sovereign, not the devil, not man. God is sovereign. Second thing, the absolute authority of Jesus Messiah over the earth. He is, he has total authority over the earth. Not the devil, not wicked people, Jesus. The third thing we're going to see is the hand of God in the coming world tribulation. The world is about to, to be thrust into what is called the great tribulation. These two chapters are like a prelude to hell. We're going to see God's in charge. We're going to see the worship that goes on in heaven. But after four and five, we meet the horsemen of the apocalypse and the great tribulation begins. So, so we need this prelude. We need to see that God's in charge. We need to see the magnificence of the creator. We, we need to see that he's got it all under control because of what's about to go down. John is left totally speechless by what he witnesses. First, God's royalty on the throne is described with breathtaking symbology. All right, let's read verse three. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones. Now, this is the one on the throne. He's brilliant as, John is going, what's he like? I have to say gemstones. Like Jasper and Sardius. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Can we imagine it? Please, everybody, think. Let your sanctified imagination run with this. I mean, we're seeing color, beauty, magnificence. Three gemstones are mentioned. Jasper. What does Jasper look like? It's clear, uh, it's clear crystal stone, and it pictures purity here. Sardius is deep redstone and no doubt pictures the blood of the lamb. 
Because the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. Matter of fact, the whole Bible is all about Jesus. Stem to stern. Okay? So you got purity pictured. You have the blood of the lamb pictured. Then an emerald. It's light green stone. And that symbolizes always in the Bible majesty, royalty. So these are the pictures God is giving us of this magnificent throne sitting in heaven right now. It hadn't moved since he saw it. Next, John sees something else. 24 thrones surrounded him, the one sitting on the throne, and 24 elders sat on them. Now, look how it describes them. They were all clothed in white, and they all had gold crowns on their heads. Well, what does this mean? Who are they? Who are these 24 elders? Well, there's no doubt in my mind they represent the church. They represent all of the redeemed believers worshiping before God because of the way they're described. They're clothed in white. So are you. God looking at you right now, he doesn't see our failings, our flaws, our imperfections. He sees the blood of the lamb covering all of our sin, and we are clothed in white as far as God is concerned, right? So the elders, they're all dressed in white, and and that is a perfect picture of purity and redemption, and it's repeated throughout Scripture. Now, they had crowns on their heads that were of gold. Crowns always speak of rewards and authority. The Bible is very clear that we all as individuals and part of Christ's church will receive rewards. You know that, right? Read 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great white throne judgment. That's when sin is going to be judged. The bema, the judgment seat of Christ, is when not our sin, but the church's works are going to be tested and tried and rewarded or not. And they will be comprised of, or, or likened unto gold, silver, and precious stones, the good works for which there will be a reward, or wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned up by the fire of testing. You won't receive a reward for that. So there will be crowns given out. There's the soul winner's crown. There's the pastor's crown. There's the perseverer's crown. I think there's at least five crowns in the Bible, all rewards that believers are going to receive. Rewards. Amen. So we're going to receive good ones if we involve ourselves in genuine good works, which are works that we do for his glory, not our own, in obedience to him, not our own will, that point people to him, not us. Good works. We receive a reward. Now, Next, John observes more about this throne that is sitting in heaven. Folks, again, I say, right now, it's there. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning in front of the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Wow. As if it wasn't enough to grab your attention You know, the gemstones, now we got thunder, lightning, uh, uh, torches burning in front of it. Now, the lightning and thunder, John witnesses, represent the awesome judgments and righteousness of God that are about to be released onto the world. There's no question. That's what the thunder is all about. Judgment is about to fall on a Christ-rejecting world. 
Then John notes, in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. I almost want to say we can't take much more. Gemstones, thunder, lightning, burning lamps. But now, stretched out in front of the throne, a shiny sea that looks like glass. The sea of glass represents eternity. One of the most permanent substances to the ancients was glass. Everything else rusted, you know, fell apart, eroded, but not glass. Glass doesn't rust, doesn't fall apart, doesn't erode. Glass pictured eternity to the ancients. And God's sovereign throne, we're being shown here, is eternal. His throne is from everlasting to everlasting. So that's the picture language here that we're being shown. It's an eternal throne. And I say again, church, it's there right now. It hadn't moved. Nothing has changed since he saw it. It's fixed. How many of you would like to see it in person? I'm telling you, you will. You will. Next in verses, I, I can't wait. Right? Walk on that sea of glass. Stand in front of that throne. Man. Next in verse 6 to 8, John sees, this is like out of Steven Spielberg, but here we go. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like a young bull. The third had a face like a human. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes. Inside and out. <laughs> Man! Without stopping, day or night, they are singing. Read it with me, everybody. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Come on, that's not everybody. Read it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is what? Coming. Wow. Now remember, the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, types and shadows and pictures of the Messiah to come. The, New, the Old Testament looks forward to the cross and the resurrection. The New Testament epistles look back on the cross and the resurrection. The Old Testament anticipates Christ. The New Testament celebrates Christ. All right, But the whole Bible is about Christ. Every book in the Bible, all 66, are loaded with pictures, types, and shadows, or outright um, messages, and, and um, meeting Jesus face-to-face in the Gospels. But, but the whole Bible is about Christ. All of it. It's a book about Jesus. One way or the other. Now, that being said, the book of Revelation is focused on the glorious risen Messiah and his imminent return. So these living creatures speak of the Lord. So let's look at them. We see the first creature was like a lion. Well, that symbolizes the kingship of Christ. Christ is the conquering ruler of all. Amen? What's he called? The what of Judah? Lion. The second creature was like a calf. Uh, another version says bull but symbolizing the priesthood of Christ because calves or bulls 
were sacrificed to atone for Israel's sins. So likewise, our Lord was the sacrifice for our sins. He alone can wash away our sins by his blood. So the calf or the bull here represents his priesthood, his shed blood in order to redeem us. The third creature was like a man, symbolizing the humanity of Christ. What did he call himself in the book of Mark all the time? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Jesus Christ is Son of Man, one of us, born of a woman. That's the gospel. God made flesh, and he precedes us as the firstborn from the dead. Yet he remains close to us, knocking at our door, seeking to fellowship and abide with us. He's the Son of Man. The fourth creature was like an eagle, symbolizing the divinity of Christ. Jesus was truly God. He was all man, all God, all God, all man. And he never gave up his divinity. He never gave up his divinity ever. When he was on the cross, he didn't give up his divinity. When he came to be born a human being, he didn't give up his divinity. He was always all God, all man, all man, all God. So here we're seeing his divinity in the fourth creature, the eagle. Jesus was truly God from eternity, having arisen from the dead and ascended on high, lives forever far above all things like the soaring of an eagle. So a lion, a calf, a man, an eagle, these living creatures are all preaching and testifying of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 closes out with John observing a profound worship session in heaven. One thing I saw, and we're going to see in this study, is what's going on in heaven? Worship. If you don't like worship, you're in big trouble in heaven. You know, if you're one of these God's frozen chosen and you can't, you know, really get into worshiping God, you better learn now. Because what I see in the book of Revelation is that's all that's going on up there. All right? Watch this. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, to the one who lives forever and ever, look what happens in verse 10. The 24 elders representing the church bow in front of the one who sits on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they take the crowns off their head and put, it, put them before the throne. They don't even, they give them back. And they say, our Lord and God, you deserve to receive glory, honor, and power because you created everything. Everything came into existence and was created because of your will. Can I tell you tonight, you are not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Everything came into existence. It was created because of your will. So here's this worship session going on. And as we come to chapter 5, things change a bit. Here's John. He's watching worship. He's seen the throne, the sea of glass, the gemstone colors, the torches, the thundering and the lightning. And then this worship session. And now something happens that is huge. He's shown a scroll. And we all know what a scroll is. We've all seen the movies. How many of you saw the Ten Commandments, right? The scroll, papyrus that you unrolled. You unrolled these long strips of papyrus, and that's what they wrote on. And 
chapters and verses didn't even exist when it was written. Chapters and verses were added to the Bible around the uh, early 18th century, 17th century. But before then, there were no chapters and verses. It was one long read. Chapters and verses are man-made. But they take nothing from the true, pure word of God that was given. They just give us verses where we can more easily uh, memorize it, where I can say, turn with me to John 5, verse 2, and it's easier to access. But they didn't exist for most of the time the Bible's been on the planet. It was just one long scroll, okay? So here's John. He's, he's, he's handed a scroll. Verse 1, I saw a scroll on the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. It had writing both on the inside and on the outside. It was sealed with seven seals. Now this scroll is, like I said, crucially important. We note it's not a man holding on to it. It's not a man holding it out to John. It's not an angel holding it out to John. It is God holding it out to, to John. That makes it super important. God himself stretches it and says, here, John. Now, this is conjecture, but it could be the scroll that Daniel refers to in Daniel 12, verse 9, where Daniel is instructed by the angel Gabriel. Go your way, Daniel. The words of revelation I've given you are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So God's plan, going all the way back to Daniel's day, would one day be unsealed. When? At the time of the end. So this could be the same scroll. Don't know. When God said, or Gabriel said to Daniel, the time of the end, he refers to the end of this age when God wraps up this whole thing and the Lord Jesus ushers in his millennial kingdom of a thousand years. Remember the old movies, the old black and white movies, Hollywood movies, they would come to a close and this music would come and it would say, the end. Remember that? The end. You don't see it anymore, but the end. As if you didn't know it was the end, they're telling you it's the end. Okay? But here's the deal. There's going to be a the end. Right? That's what he's saying here. Till the time of the end. The end of what? This world as we have known it. Time as we have known it. It'll all come to an end when Christ returns. And he will set up his millennial kingdom. And it'll be a totally different world. No devil. Hallelujah. He'll be bound. And, and I, that's another thing. We'll get into that towards the end of the book. But look what John writes next. I saw a powerful angel calling out uh, in a loud voice. Who deserves to open the scroll and break the seals on it? And then verse 3. No one in heaven on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Look what happened to John. I cried bitterly because no one was found who deserved to open the scroll or look inside it. Why did he cry? I think the first reason he cried was he was made starkly aware in a whole new way of the fallen sinful nature of man that nobody could be found worthy to open up this scroll 
which is really important because this scroll is going to start the great tribulation. The judgments that begin to fall are in this scroll. John's tears aren't idle tears. He's weeping over this seven-sealed scroll and the sad fact that not a soul on the earth was righteous enough to open it is breaking his heart. But he's comforted when one of the 24 elders steps forward and says, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Amen. So, Get this, everybody, this is powerful. The resurrected Christ is the only one worthy. The only one in heaven and earth or under the earth, in all of God's universe, he's the only one worthy enough to open up these seven seals. And what comes next is dramatic and powerful. Verses six and seven, I saw a lamb. Please catch this, everybody. I saw a lamb standing in the center near the throne. He's in proximity to God's throne with the four living creatures right there and the 24 elders right there. And the lamb looked like he had been slaughtered. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent all over the world. Now, I know what you're thinking. What in the world is that? I believe here is talking about seven manifestations of the one and the same spirit of God. Seven manifestations. What they are, I don't know. But the seven spirits of God, he's not saying there's seven Holy Spirits. I think it's seven ways the Holy Spirit is manifesting in the earth at this time. And they're sent all over the world. And he took the scroll from the right hand. So I got to say it, God's right-handed. If you're a lefty, hey, no condemnation. <laughs> but here it says the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. I'm just, that's free. I'm not going to make a doctrine out of it. We're going to see that this scroll with its seven seals are the focus of the next three chapters. The next three chapters, six, seven, and eight, are going to be the opening up of these seals and what they release on the earth. Now, what's interesting is, as you read through the book of Revelation, as you watch these seals get opened, and you hear the trumpets sound, and you see the bowls of God's wrath, because there's 21 judgments in all. You're going to see this. Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. And my take on it, as I read through it, is they get worse consecutively each time. The seals are not as bad as the trumpets and the trumpets are not as bad as the bowls. By the time you get to the bowl judgments, the earth is a wreck. But as you read these 21 judgments that are falling upon a Christ-rejecting world. So, so people don't like talking about judgment these days. You know, oh, God's a God of love. He's never going to judge. No, he's going to judge because he's a God of love. Because he's not only a God of love, he's a God of holiness. And since he's a God of holiness, he's a God of justice. All right, no holiness, no justice, but God must exact justice for every sin committed on the planet. Now, the, the, the people that are being judged here, in my opinion, the, the church is gone. So the people that are being judged here is a Christ-rejecting, God-hating, Bible-hating, 
blasphemous, sold out to sin population. You read Paul talking about it in Thessalonians where he says, since they didn't receive the love of the truth, God sends them a strong delusion that they would believe not a lie, the lie. The article is used there, the lie, which means it's a particular kind of lie or a unique lie. What's the lie? The Antichrist and the deception he perpetrates on the world. But we're going to get to that as we go through the book. Now, halfway, so we go, re, see these 21 judgments and we go, wow, what is, why is all this happening and what are these terrible judgments leading to? I'm glad you asked because the answer is in Revelations 11:15. It says, then the seventh angel sounded. Now this is the seventh trumpet blast, all right? right before the final bowl judgments. But after the seventh trumpet blast, there will be loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, this is crucial. We're going to see in our study that the seven seals in the scroll lead to the seven trumpet judgments. And the last of the seven trumpet judgments will signify the abolition of all human government and the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom under the rule of Jesus Christ. Satan will have no more dibs on anything in this world. At this point, right here, Notice what it says, the kingdoms of this world, every human government, American government, hallelujah, they need the second coming right now, um, American government, China's government, Russia's government, you name it, North Korea, South Korea, uh, name, name the government, they're all going to cease governing when that seventh trumpet blows, all human government is done away with. And there is a switch, a swap, a um, whole new way of everything being run. Because now it's going to be run totally and thoroughly by God. No human government, no more evil dictators, no more, e no more despots, no more Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, no more, none of that. It's all going to go when the seventh trumpet sounds. So that's what it's all leading up to. This is huge because this is what was lost when Adam and Eve fell. Amen. So we're, we're looking forward to the everlasting rule of Jesus Christ. So that's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, one day that prayer is going to be answered. It's gonna, his kingdom is going to run things on earth as it is in heaven. But let's don't jump too far ahead. I just want to give you a little um, glimpse into what's coming in this study. Chapter 5 finishes out with an incredible heavenly worship session. Oh, we're about to get in some rich stuff as we close tonight. Ready? Verse 8, when the Lamb had taken the scroll, that is, Jesus took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 
elders bowed in front of him, each held a harp and a gold bowl full of incense, the prayers of God's holy people. Did you ever stop to think that when you pray in Jesus' name, it's so sacred and special and precious to God that it's like the sweet smell of incense to him. And he keeps them all in a bowl-like container in heaven. And it's revealed in the book of Revelation in this time period. It's revealed. Now look what happens in verse 9. They sang a new song. And here's what it said, quote, you deserve to take the scroll and open the seals on it. They're singing now. Everybody's singing. Here's their song. Here's the top 40 hit, the number one hit in heaven. Here it is. Heaven's number one hit. You deserve to take the scroll and open the seals on it because you were slaughtered. Can everybody say he was slaughtered for me? That's what the text says. You bought people with your blood to be God's own. Everybody say with me, I'm a purchased possession. Oh, yeah, we're not our own. Can you say with me, I'm not my own. That's why we can't run our own life. No, he is Lord. He is Lord. And we sing, I surrender all. Most of us mean it this way. I surrender some. What I agree with, I surrender. What I don't agree with, oh, I just kind of hold it back. But no, he is Lord of all. We surrender all. Why? Because we're bought. We're owned by him. And, and, and look where he got everybody from. They're from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You made them a kingdom and priests for our God. And look what's going to happen with us, everybody. They will rule. Who? The redeemed. They will rule as kings on the earth that is coming. The new world that is coming. That's why I called this series, A New World is Coming. We will rule as kings on the earth, the world that is coming. Then I heard the voices of many angels, the four living creatures, and the elders surrounding the throne. Look how many there were. They numbered 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands times thousands. In other words, an innumerable, uncountable multitude. In a loud voice, they were singing, the lamb who was slain deserves to receive power, wealth, Wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, everywhere. Now look, what creatures? He didn't say I heard every person. He said I heard every creature. Well, the Greek word for creature here is simply created things. Now, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to tell you what I think this is. Everything praises God. Everything praises God. Uh, I, I mean, come on. Um, Jesus said, if you don't let the people praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. See, I believe everything praises God. Praise and worship of God is the language of the universe. All right? So every created thing. So John is telling us the day is going to come when every living thing, man or animal, everything that is animated, everything that has life will erupt in praise of Jesus Christ. I believe that. 
Paul the Apostle said the same thing. Look what he said, Romans 8, verse 19. All creation. Everybody say all creation. So there's the same thing. Is eagerly waiting for God to reveal who his children are. In other words, the return of Christ. Creation was subjected to frustration. Your version may say futility, but not by its own choice. There is a futility to life. All right? And what is the futility? Um, Broken dreams. Unfulfilled aspirations. Decaying. Dying. Aging. There's a futility to things. And I'm going to say this, until you meet Christ, life is futile. Your thoughts are futile. What futile means is it goes nowhere. Until your mind is renewed by the word of God, your thinking is futile. Your thinking is not going to take, bring you any answers that matter. No. It's only when we get saved and we begin to read the scriptures that our thinking becomes fruitful instead of futile. But before then, it's futility. All, all the philosophies of the world, if you ever bother to read the various philosophers through the centuries, they're crazier than us. I mean, they're, they're thinking. They think themselves into a box, into a corner, into impossible pretzels. They, they twist themselves looking for answers to life. I mean, I've read a bunch of them. Read the German philosophers. Read the American philosophers. Read the, the look, I don't care where you go in the world. When you read the, the true, genuine, those that are considered to be the great philosophers of the human race, read their writings. Now, it's not that everything they observe is terrible or wrong, but there's a futility to it because it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't bring eternal answers. Didn't the Bible say God has made the wisdom of this world foolish? The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul and making wise the simple. Give me somebody with a barely room temperature IQ and let me fill them with the word of God. They're wiser than brilliant IQ philosophers whose thinking gets them nowhere because there's a futility to life. It's the hamster's wheel. I'm going, 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 but I'm not getting anywhere until I get saved. And then, now I'm getting somewhere, all right? Now I understand things. So Paul says, creation was subjected to frustration, but not by its own choice. The one who subjected it to frustration did so in the hope that it will also be set free So the whole creation is looking to be set free from slavery to decay in order to share the glorious freedom the children of God will have. We know that all creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth up to the present time. So the whole creation, the animal world, the fish of the sea, it says everything is going to praise God. They're all, they have a sense in their little animal or marine life brains that somehow I'm in futility, and I'm, I'm suffering and looking to 
the revelation of the sons of God that's going to happen when Christ returns. Every creature in those places was singing, says John, to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen. Then the leaders bowed down in worship. And that's the end of chapter 5. Let's stand together. This thing is going to have to get fixed before Sunday. There we go. Um, how many of you are so thankful for a saving God? Amen? A saving God. And that he's got everything under control. We need to know it. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer right now. Father, we worship you. We come into your presence and we worship you. Lord, thank you for chapters 4 and 5 that show us your majesty uh, your sovereignty, that prepare us, that prep us for what's coming in the chapters that now follow. And Lord, we thank you that the lamb was slaughtered for us and that you purchased us with his blood. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that a new day is coming. Come on, everybody, a new day is coming. A new day is coming. And we're so thankful for it. In Jesus' mighty name, say with me, church, let's just pray and pray this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, may I glorify you and involve my time on this earth in good works that I may receive a good reward in the world to come. And thank you. You've got everything under control. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed tonight. God bless you. Have a good evening. Thank you for coming.